for our first episode, I wanted to focus on the superpower debate. Many of you have probably heard that autism is a superpower. They've said we should tell kids autism is a superpower. And then the other side will tell them that it's not a superpower, that it's a disability. And I wanted to get into that and have a real nuanced conversation after I attempted to have a nuanced conversation on Twitter and got ratioed into oblivion. But that, that's my own fault. I, I should have known what was going to happen. I should have, but I thought we, I thought it was possible. So I want to try that again here where I can only be ratioed by one person. So. And, and Torrin, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, the topic of the whole having superpowers, uh, I'm, you know, in a lot of parent groups just trying to, you know, see what parents need. And it can be controversial in the sense of parents tag their child as having a superpower. Um, but what does that really mean, right? And so my perspective has always been, oh, yay, it's supposed to be something really positive. But then my frustration has always been, it takes away from looking at the child, right? Sometimes, like they just say, oh, they're autistic, they have a superpower, and, and that's it, that's it, like nothing else, right? Like the parents don't do anything else. Like they just say that and then they don't do anything else. And that's where I get stuck with, Let's talk about other things. But your perspective, of course, is very different as an actual autistic individual. So share a little bit of that and, and let's get into some good dialogue. Well, I wouldn't say it's different per se. My opinion is I lean towards, <clears throat> I don't mind, excuse me, I don't mind doctors and parents referring to autism as superpower, mainly because Children who are autistic and children who are disabled in general, neurodiverse children, are going to have no shortage of people, mainly adults, educators, caregivers, doctors, telling them they can't do things, telling them they're disabled. All the things they'll never be able to do, they'll never be able to go to college, they'll never be able to finish high school, they'll never have a job, they'll never have independence. They're going to get tons of that. So I would prefer to overcorrect and encourage them that, no, it's almost like a superpower. However, you have to be specific. You can't just say autism is superpower because we just do that when they run into their real challenges. They're not going to feel very super. Yeah. They're going to feel the complete opposite, and that can be crushing. You have to help them identify what their strengths are. Because many autistics tend to have strengths in certain areas that are well beyond average. Mm -hmm. And you need to help your child, your parent, you need to help your child identify that if you're an autistic adult. You probably already know what that is. I'm, I'm going to be honest. So if you're a parent, this is mainly the parents. If you're an adult, you, you probably already know what that is. If you're a parent, you need to help your child identify what their strengths are and how to use that to overcome their disabilities. Because they will have disabilities. They will have things they struggle with. That is going to happen. That's guaranteed. They need to understand. They need to lean on their strengths. That's not to say they won't struggle, but that's something that needs to be instilled really early on, in my opinion. And I think that I think that's where our perspective merges in terms of when a parent says that, I want to know, okay, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? Is it that your child is really, really good at building things and that's their superpower? Is it that your child sees things um, in a way and problem solves and, and creates things? Is that their superpower? And so I think that's where I am sort of like, 
what does that mean, right? Like, like when you make that broad statement, are you negating that your child still needs support and you're just over embracing, right? That they're just going to be nonverbal and, and make really great things with Legos and I'm not going to work on communication at all. Or are you looking at what is the, what, what is it they do really, really well? What do they have as their, um, their strength and something that they do maybe well compared to neurotypical, if we want to sort of have that comparison, I'm not sure if I want to open that can of worms, but what does that really mean? And so that's where when I have a conversation with parents who wear the t-shirt or their child wears a t-shirt, I want to know, are you having that discussion with your child where they understand what that means that I have a superpower? Are you letting them know that I'm able to communicate with my AAC device and I'm, I'm, maybe that's part of sort of my superpower that I can communicate differently than someone who communicates verbal and putting something attached to it. Um, and maybe that's just my concrete way of thinking in terms of, I just like clarity when those broad statements are made. The other thing is Torin, I, you know, sort of the last 25 years that I've been sort of navigating, learning, and um, engaging um, with the autism community, I'm always coming from a standpoint of what are parents doing so that their children can show their superpower, right? Can go into the world and be um, an independent adult, whatever that looks like, right? That looks different for everyone. Um, so with that said, because I could just go on and on and on, uh, if you were to, so for example, if you were to say, okay, I am Torin, I'm an autistic individual, and my superpower is, what would it be? That's the thing. I feel like that's not quite the way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Hear me out. I would, I would go with something more, instead of like a concrete, like, I have x-ray vision, or I'm super good at art. I would sort of look at it as I'm really good at understanding myself and seeing different ways to achieve goals that aren't quite the ways you expect to do it. Oftentimes, what neurotypicals will do, and to, to, to go into definitions of what neurotypicals is someone who hasn't been diagnosed with any sort of mental disability or disorder or like ADHD, autism, bipolar, things like that. <laughs> so I'm sorry for being distracted. Like I said, the thunder is legit. It's throwing me off a little bit. Um, it just started raining when we pressed record. Oh, Luckily, wait. I'm not out there, though. When it comes to superpowers, the superpower is that we can find different ways to do things that aren't entirely obvious. And it stays day and age with the age of technology and sort of the social structures that we've seen in various countries sort of start to change and fall down. It's a perfect time for a lot of disabled individuals to chart new paths. So I see it more in an abstract way than actual superpower. I can give you some of my talents. I'm very perceptive, for example. I have photographic memory. Good at writing. I'm decent at writing. So I have some talents, but everyone has talent. That doesn't make autistic people. It's how we find ways to utilize our talents that I think is the actual superpower.
but that needs to be taught and harnessed. You can't just say that. They're not just going to know how to do that. Yeah. And, you know, it's when, when I hear that term, it, and I say the terminology, typically I am introduced to that terminology with a shirt, right? Like someone's got a shirt, their child has a shirt. You know, uh, years ago when I would participate in autism walks where, you know, everyone's draped in puzzle pieces. Um, I, I think when I think back on when I was first introduced to a kiddo on my caseload who was diagnosed with autism, my first, if I, you know, I guess it is my first kiddo who had a diagnosis. And I remember just watching him. And then when I had more students and watching my students And I always just had such an appreciation for the way they perceived the world and the way they navigated doing things. I always thought was beneficial to me and my classroom and our community. Right. And so I guess if I, if I looked at it as a superpower, it's really in general, uh, I appreciate autism. Yes. I know there are challenges. I'm not disagreeing that there aren't challenges, but I think that my life is so much more um, ah, better. I cannot imagine my world without autistic individuals. I've, I've learned so much. I have grown and gained so much in terms of seeing the world in a different way and also just seeing how things can be done differently. And it's okay. Like, it's really okay. Um, I've never been a conformist ever, 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 um, which drove my mother crazy. And it still drives her crazy because I don't conform. I've always been that duck going the other way. And I think that, um, you know, navigating the world as an autistic individual and, as you said, being able to do things differently and still get things done and communicate differently, it still works, right? It still works. And, and it's up to myself and other individuals who are, are not diagnosed um, as an autistic person to embrace that and work with that and not force it to be something else. So I guess embracing the superpower of autism, but what does that really mean? And I guess that's what this conversation is about in terms of what does that mean? Right. And I guess it means different things for the child, for the teen, for you as an adult, for the parents. Um, This is a a topic that I wasn't expecting to get this emotional about, but this is good. This is good. I did. I did. I did. Like, like (laughs) we're both people who really sort of care about these issues and we live this as our lives. So I expected to get very emotional. What I want to go into is some of the ways where this is misconstrued, what we're saying, because what we just say is completely rational. It's a, that's not the message that's getting elevated. So I'm going to exactly. uh, explore that from both sides. So yes. the first is a lot of disabled people get really, 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 really mad when you say, when I say things like, I don't like the word can't. Because I don't like the word can't. You should never tell a child he can't do something unless it's something really dangerous. Like, you cannot jump off a building and fly. That's not going to happen. But I don't like, even then, that's probably not how you should phrase it. I don't like the word can't. You should never tell somebody, especially a child, that they are unable to do something. Because it's very likely they're not unable to do it. They just can't do it in 
the way most other people do it. And that's what we don't focus on. We we focus on you should be we focus in this in special education. We focus on getting disabled people to do things the way everybody else does. Yeah. And sometimes that's necessity, like potty training, for example. But for the most part, for most things, we can't do things, we cannot, so there I just used it. We cannot or should not, should not do things the way everybody else does because the physical, emotional, and mental toll will be really heavy for us. Mm-hmm. We need to find our own ways to achieve our goals. And that's what we need to teach disabled children is how to use their strengths to chart new paths. Exactly. I had to chart different paths because I'm autistic. I have issues with sensory and I have a relatively low, low stress threshold. I have several phobias. I have to sort of chart my own way. I'm charting my own way. I'm helping to found the production studio. Obviously, I, I linked up with you. I'm an advocate. I'm a writer. But I charted my own path. No one told me to go do that stuff. They told me to go get a quote unquote real job, just to give an example. And I'm doing things on my terms. But that's because I'm naturally somebody who always saw the world different and always wanted to do things different. We have to teach that. That can be taught, and we have to teach that. That's the only way disabled people are going to be able to live out their goals. I'm not saying we, should, we don't need support. I'm not saying that. Yeah. What I'm saying is we also need to develop self-efficiency. Mm-hmm. And as parents of younger, disabled, and autistic mm-hmm. kids, that's where you come in. Yeah. Teaching them how to be the best version of themselves, to say something a bit cliche. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, <clears throat> so when you say that we need to teach that, I automatically think, I need to teach that to my parents and my educators to embrace kids doing things in a different way. Because I find that a lot of times, especially when it's younger children, they can do it. But because it looks different, someone thinks they can't, right? And, and I'll, I'll share a perfect example in terms of reading. Reading is one of those things that we, and I say we, we as educators, someone years ago decided... Reading is demonstrated by you reading out loud to someone to prove that you can read, right? Well, I have a student that when he is asked to read out loud, he does not say every word. He skips over words. And so it was assumed he can't read. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. He can read. You just need to let him read in the way his, if we want to say superpower, he scans. He scans and processes and scans visually like you would not believe, right? Um, And I'm not saying that, um, you know, I don't want anyone to misinterpret it. Oh, it's a savant skill. It's just something that he does well. His scanning system works extremely efficiently. And so this is a child that when I let him read in a way that works for him, which is silently, or he reads out loud and he skips over words and it sounds like gibberish all the time, but he knows all the answers to the questions. He can tell me anything. We can talk about the story. He can take the science quiz. And that is where embracing and understanding the superpower concept of being able to do something in a different way, but still accomplishing the end task. That's where 
we have to accept that. I mean, we just have to, because if not, you know, I think of all the other kids who no one's advocating for them. They're getting in trouble. They're getting punished. They're not getting moved to the next reading level because everyone thinks that they can't read because they're not doing it in the way that the standardized format dictates we're supposed to do it. Um, and, and that is unfair and it is wrong. <laughs> for, I mean, that's my opinion. So, so that's. And it's counterproductive. Exactly. And it's counterproductive. Yes. Like you can keep throwing yourself at the brick wall, throwing your kid at the brick wall. They're not, neither of y'all are going through the brick wall. Yeah. I think that is a really good point that you just made. Um, and I don't know if you could hear it when you just said it. Neither of you is going through the brick wall. So we keep putting up these brick walls for our kids to knock down. And then we wonder why they're frustrated. But we're not the ones that are having to experience it. And I think that's where... I mean, that's why I do what I do. That's why I talk to anyone and everyone because I'm tired of people putting our kids into a brick wall. I'm tired of folks expecting our children to play. I was just in a meeting earlier and the teacher made a big deal out of the child not playing with utensils, like in the play kitchen. He wasn't using the fork pretend. And I said, but he was using the fork for something he thought the fork could be used for that was important, which was making a drumming on the plate. And so what is wrong with that? And why is that not seen as pretend play? He's pretending to play the drums, whether it's for sensory input, whether it's because he's enjoying it, whatever it is, why do we have to dictate that that's not right, right? Because he is using the fork, the plastic fork, not to pretend eating. I mean, seriously, you know, who wants to pretend eating food that's not there? I mean, that's my... <laughs> my my one disagreement with that, I agree with everything. My one disagreement is parents are putting up and educators and doctors are putting up brick walls for themselves too. Because you're going to stress over your child, not in your example, not for that educator stressing over the child, not pretending to eat with a plastic fork. That person is stressing themselves out for no reason. They're building a brick wall and throwing themselves into the brick wall as well for no reason. It's really not necessary. We're speaking a lot of abstracts, but let me give you a a concrete example. This is from my own personal life. When I was in high school, I I was not a good academic student. That's a stereotype that autistics will put it academics as a stereotype. Very annoying stereotype. Even other autistics like to portray. I was not good at academics. I barely got by. And in New York State, we have a thing called Regents, which are state, which are standardized tests that you have to pass to get a Regents diploma. And if you don't get a Regents diploma, no college in the state is going to even look at you. So I had a math test come out. I am absolutely terrible at math. I, I only passed math in high school because my teacher felt bad for me and added 20 points to my grade, <laughs> which is probably illegal, but that's the only reason I passed. To give you an idea, this is how bad I am at. If I see an equation, you can teach it to me, and I'll forget it five minutes later. I just won't get it. What I did was, going into this test, I had to pass. I looked at it, and I, they, they started giving us um, practice regions, because what they could do is they could give us older regions from years yeah. past, which yeah. would be the whole test. Now, they change the questions every three months when they give the test. Every three months, they change the questions. So it doesn't really help you with the questions because it's going to be different questions. That's what the teacher told us, at least. (laughs) 
he gave us, he threw like seven years worth of test status in the weeks prior, which is like 14, 15 tests could happen twice a year. And I instantly noticed something. They do have the same questions. They repeat roughly every five years. I believe it was every five years. I can't be exact. But they do repeat roughly every five years. Mm-hmm. Now, what they'll do is the mul- there's a multiple choice, a short and a short answer section. So the multiple choice is well, multiple choice, and the short answer section is they give you a problem and you have to show your work and show how you got to the answer. The multiple choice were repeated every five years. Now they would move like the answers around, so, they, so what yes. used to be A is now D, but it was the same answer. Yeah. So you got, obviously, if you got it right, you got a point. For the short answer, for the short answer portion, you got partial credit for getting the problem right and partial credit for showing your work. So you get partial credit if you showed your work but came to the wrong answer and vice versa. You came to the right answer, but the equation was wrong. Gotcha. They'll give you partial credit. So what I figured out is I did the math. I needed 66 to pass. I did the math. Which is pretty simple. That that app I could do, I just plugged into a calculator, and then I asked my uh, teacher to make sure my numbers are right. If I could pass just by getting all the multiple choice right, and just fill and just filling out a little of the equation, like the first step of the equation, which I could remember, I couldn't remember the whole thing, but I could remember the first step, and just getting like a quarter point here, quarter point there on the short answer, could I stitch together a sixty-six? Yeah. And he says. Yes, but that I wouldn't suggest that. He wanted me to do it the normal way. It was like to yeah. study hard, to study yeah. hard. I, I was studying hard, it wasn't working. I have a photographic memory. So he would tell me the answers to these questions, all the questions on, on the on the regions, the test, the, the, the sort of practice regions. He would tell us the answer to the multiple choice because that was okay because they don't repeat questions, right? So I memorized what the answer should look like even though I didn't understand it. And they repeated it every five years. So yeah. I knew when the real test came, what set of questions I was going to get. Got it. So the test comes in. Sure enough, it was the questions I expected to get. I memorized what the answers should look like because photographic memory. Yeah. So I did really well. I got, I believe, 28 out of 30, the multiple choice correct. Mm-hmm. And I just would fill in partial answers for the short answer questions. I ended up being a 60. I ended up being a 67. I did one point ah. better. And my teacher couldn't re, couldn't comprehend that I gamed the system like that. <laughs> super and he's bad. actually mad. He's like, "Well, no, you actually filled in the short answer questions. You will score the hundred. I'm like, "Because oh, I don't I don't know the answers though. That's the thing. Yeah. Like if I so I think that would be the easier way to do it. If I could have done it that way, I would have." I had to freaking MacGyver my way through the test because <laughs> I'm just really bad at math. Yeah. But that's how I did. That is a practical example of I leaned on my strengths, which is memory, mm-hmm. pattern recognition, and just being able to sort of think outside the box. Mm-hmm. I used those strengths to pass that test that I had no business being able to pass. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Now, I did that naturally. No one taught me to do that. But mm-hmm. stuff like that can be taught. If we're yeah. just willing to sort of open our minds and find new ways. Because the reason that 66 was important is in that particular context, it didn't matter how high you scored on that test. They didn't care how high you scored as long as you passed. Mm-hmm. To the point where it probably should have been just pass fail. 
Because they yeah. don't care if you get 100 or a 66. Yes. So there was no point in me getting 100. There was no penalty. All I had to do was get a 66, and I cleared that bar. So mm-hmm. I got that certificate, which got me in the college. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a smart problem-solving strategy using your strengths to compensate for weaknesses. I mean, my grandma used to say that all the time. Accentuate your strengths to distract from your weaknesses. Now, she exactly. was saying, yeah, she was saying that from a perspective of being a woman, you know, uh, trying to attract a man in terms of, you know, don't wear something that shows your hips, right? Like accentuate something else on your body. That's where that came from. But I've always translated that into, you know, my students. And, and one of the things that I've always done with students is teach them strategies to do exactly that. Like, this is what you're really good at. So let's use this to compensate for the fact that you really struggle with this sort of thing. And how can we sort of maneuver and like you said, just problem solve um, that situation. And I don't talk a lot about my photographic memory um, because a lot of folks, uh, when I talk about it, they just get confused. But I used to do that for my neuroanatomy test. I'm not really good with short-term memory and I'm not good with rote memory. I'm more of an application, um, just take it in. And we had to take assessments and label like parts of the brain. Now, I love neurology, I love the brain, I love all that, but I'm not really good at memorizing. So what I was good at was I could take a picture and file it in my brain and pull it up later to use it. So that's how I passed my neuroanatomy tests for lab. I would take snapshots of the brain with all the labels. And then when I sat for the test, I would literally pull up the file, look at it, label the picture, and then trash the file. And that's how I passed neuroanatomy. Now, I understood what the parts of the brain were doing, but I'm just not good at rote memory. So that was that was what I used in order to, to sort of uh, compensate for the fact that I couldn't do it the other way. And I think that that brings to your point of we can teach it but if parents and teachers are educators are going to teach that they need to be aware of what the child's strengths are and that's where i think we're working hard to get the word out that you need to look for those strengths stop looking at they don't eat an apple right oh my gosh they're not you know playing with 300 friends at recess so what like, that's not the end of the world. It's not a game changer, and it's not a job skill. But there are other things that this child can do. And I think that everyone's looking for the checklist of what they want the child to do, like play with the fork and pretend you're eating. Um, and, and clearly that example is bothering me, right, because I keep bringing it up, because I just think it's ridiculous to note something like that when there are so many other things the child did do, right? But that wasn't talked about just the fort was brought up, right? Um, anyway, that's a whole and, for, and for our American audience who might have high school age autistic children who are taking the SAT, mm-hmm. uh, they repeat the questions every semester. There's no gap. What they'll do with the multiple choice for the reading part in particular, for the reading part and also for the math, is they'll sort of, they'll flip the question around. So for example, it'll say, Bob and Sally, had two apples. Bob had two apples. Sally had three apples. How many apples they had? Six months later, when the next test comes out, it'll say, Bob and Sally combined had five apples. Bob had two. How many is Sally had? It's the same question. It just reworded. I figured that out on the SAT as well, which helped me because once again, the first time I took the SAT, 
I scored a 320. Put that in perspective, you get 200 to sign in your name. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's out of, it's out of 800. I scored a 320 and they give you 200 to sign in your name. The second time I scored 500, which still isn't yeah. great, but I literally did that. I literally figured out and give them the same questions and just moving them around. So by the second time I knew the answers to the questions, I found them out. Mm-hmm. So just a little tip for anybody taking the SAT. They, they don't even bother waiting a year. Like the next test will have the same questions. So just be rewarded. I just love it. I just love yeah, it. The FBI is going to knock on my door in a minute now. Well, you know, so so this brings my point, Torin, to appreciating the perspective of the autistic individual that a neurotypical person may not be able to notice that pattern, right? But a person with autism might. Maybe not everyone, of course, because everyone's different. But that that is what I appreciate about the autistic perspective because there's, and, and that's where I always say, if a child is doing something with patterns, if your teen wants to hyper-focus on something, that is going to lead to a possible job skill. We just need to foster that into something practical. And I will say a hundred million times, whether I'm right, wrong, or indifferent, I truly believe that when I see kids who are, lining up, making patterns, making, you know, when I say kids, I mean, kids like in general, right? Like from, from little to, to older teens, I always think of, this is a child that may grow up to find the cure to a disease because they can actually see a pattern in either a DNA or some kind of lab work or whatever it is that folks who are looking for solving diseases look at that, myself might not be able to see because I have a different perspective and I don't view it from the autistic perspective. And that may be their superpower. Um, Without making it into, it's a savant skill. It's just something they do very, very well. And, 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 And that's why I tell parents, don't stop them from doing that, right? Like allow that to foster. Um, And, and I have a little, uh, blurb in I think one of my writings where I talk about you know one of my students who sees a diamond in a square and I told his teachers if you take that away from him (laughs) you are going to have me to reckon with because that seeing a diamond in the square is going to be something I mean you know I guess I could say that's his superpower he sees something we don't see and that's going to be a benefit to society we don't know so don't take that away don't keep telling him no it's a square he knows a square he knows his shapes. Like, stop, you know, making it to look like what you want it to look like. And one thing I want to add, I, I think that's that that's amazing and it's true. One thing I want to add is, or two things, is one, what we're talking about isn't that different than what neurotypicals or quote unquote, I'm making air quotes, quote unquote, normal people do. Most people lean on their strengths and try to limp around their weaknesses. That's most people. We're asked for some reason, but for some reason with disabled people, we're constantly trying to get them to harp on their weaknesses, even though most of us are or we're all in fields. Most of us are working jobs that we're good at. Like, for example, I would never try to become a lawyer. I'm not or a doctor. I'm not smart enough. I'm not have to stress threshold for that. I'm in advocacy, public speaking, writing, because those are things I'm good at. The second thing I want to mention is there's different. We mentioned savant a couple times. The difference between a savant skill, which is like the, the Rain Man stuff with like super yes. memory and 
the soup like do we have to the be able to see a skyline for 15 minutes and be able to draw it perfectly mm-hmm. most autistics don't have that that's another stereotype yes what we do have are strengths and special interests and a lot of us because our special interests tend to line up with our strengths mm-hmm. we're constantly using our strengths what happens if you have a talent and work at it over and over and over mm-hmm. you get even better at it. you get way better than the average person because you're working at it and there's an underlining talent for it in general. Yeah. For example, I've always been pretty articulate, especially because many autistics do struggle with articulation. I've always been pretty articulate. So I've leaned on that. For example, I can, I will narrate my own meltdowns. I don't have meltdowns very often now, but when I do, I can tell people, listen, I, I, I'm really upset right now. I can't think straight. I'm melting down. I need space. I need to shuttle off the light. I need to get me out of the heat. I can explain to them what the sensory thing is that's causing me to melt down. Yeah. Which is, I understand that's fortunate, but I've leaned on that ability because that is very important for me because that is how I personally communicate with the world. So that is something I'm always talking. I'm always talking to people. I'm always trying to get better at communicating because that's a talent I have. I want to be really, really good at it because that's how I'm going to sort of achieve my goals mm-hmm. and work around some of my weaknesses. I have tons of weaknesses. I name one. Not academically, I'm a college dropout. Academically, I'm not really that good. Um, my working memory is basically non-existent. I don't remember what I had for lunch two hours ago. Um, I could I'd go on and on with the weaknesses. Socially, I'm, I'm not as strong as I'd like to be. Um, but I do have the ability to talk. I have the ability to write. I have the ability to communicate. I have the ability to understand people mm-hmm. and myself and how they work more than average people do. And I lean on those things. <clears throat> and that, that's what we need to work on with autistic and disabled children. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, I think that you know, and, and that's a whole nother topic in terms of the schools not embracing that, right? That's where well, the parents, you know, empowering parents to be able to understand that about their child and advocate for that because and I, a story just popped in my head. Everyone knows whoever's heard me talk. I love to share stories because I think stories give context, especially for parents. And um, this sort of reminds me in terms of the superpower. I will remember I was in a classroom and it was three to four year olds, three or three, four and five year olds. And I was in classroom to support or observe or whatever I was doing with a little girl. And there was a little boy in there and he would stand by the computer. And the teacher said, oh, I don't know why he stands by that computer. He just stands there every day. The computer's not even on. He just stands there. And I'm thinking, okay, well, there must be a reason, you know, I'm not really here for the student, but I'm sure there's a reason. And so I went on about the day and, and then I pulled out my iPad and for the little girl, I was trying to get an idea of of some things that she could do. And this little boy runs over to the iPad. And of course I made a joke and said, Oh, when Miss Stacy brings her iPad out, everybody wants to talk to her because everybody loves the iPad. And he, I, I, I said to myself, okay, this is an opportunity for me to see and get an idea of, you know, uh, what he can do and, 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 and anything about him that I can gain. So I tried to direct what I wanted him to do on the iPad. He was not having that. He had something in mind for the iPad. So I said, you know what? Let me just see what he wants to do with it. 
So I relinquished the iPad, which is hard for me because I usually maintain control over the iPad because they do tend to sometimes fly across the room where you can't get them back. But I sat and he took that iPad and I kid you not, this was a child who had no verbal output. He stood by the computer all day and that little boy literally typed a sentence and said, I'm wearing big boy underwear. (laughs) I remember just bursting out screaming and saying, this child has something to say. That's why he's standing by the computer. He has something to say. And I will never forget that moment. And it's probably the moment that triggered me to really start pushing AAC devices for as many kids as possible without waiting until we worked on verbal skills for years because this child had the ability the superpower at age four to write a sentence. Like, what? Is, why are we not embracing that? But Stacy, <laughs> but Stacy, but Stacy, I'm worried. Well, let's say I'm a let's say I'm a parent. I'm worried about like what the educator is going to think, what my friends are going to think. I want him to use words because the doctor, the, the doctor who's 102 years old and like was around when Sigmund Freud was still a young man, tells me that my kid needs to use words. Yes. So if we have him use computer, he's not going to want to use words. I'm being sarcastic. I, no, I just want I, I just I want to say exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. No, know you exactly. know, I want to make sure everybody else knows. Yes. I'm being sarcastic. And, a and lot of parents, sorry, a lot of parents will want their children to essentially become neurotypical. Yes. I have some bad news for you. If your child has been diagnosed with autism, with ADHD, with any sort of disorder, they are not neurotypical. They are never going to be neurotypical. They are not going to act like the doctors and some of the teachers say they should act and behave and perform. That is not going to happen. They need to find their own way. You need to help them find their own way. And what Stacy said about that child and the computer is a perfect example of that is how that child communicates. I'm not saying they'll never, that child will never be verbal. I'm not saying that. Child's only four. So we don't know, you don't know yet. You really don't know. I didn't talk very much when I was four. However, that is how that child communicates. You need to nurture that. Yep. You need to nurture that. It's a perfect example of he can. You know, everybody thought he couldn't communicate. He can. We just weren't giving him the support he needed to be able to communicate to us. I mean, clearly this child was excited about wearing big boy underwear. And no one cared or knew that he wanted to share this. And, you know, he wasn't my student. But, I mean, I will never forget that day. And I thought, this is so sad that you guys are just letting him stand at a keyboard and no one even turned on the computer to see what he would do, you just thought he's non-compliant, right? And that's where, you know, that's a whole nother, that's another topic, that non-compliant word. Um, but I think- Yeah, we'll it, do a whole episode on that. That might be that might be our next one, actually. That yeah. might be next week's episode, not just titled non-compliant, because exactly. that is a whole, that is a whole different, that, yes. that's a whole different, I can't think of an analogy and for some reason, but y'all yeah. get, y'all, y'all feel me. Yes. I think we should start to bring this one in. 
-hmm. been talking for about 40 minutes, so I, I think we should start bringing that in. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on this topic? I just want to say that if you are going to claim your child has a superpower, then you need to be able to also foster their strengths and be able to name their strengths because I do think it's important um, to think about the whole child. And the other thing that I will say, and I say this at the end of all of my trainings that I do with parents, our children can, it just looks different and that's okay. And that's what we need to get to. We need, that's what Torn and I both just want. I mean, if I could like shake everyone and say, <laughs> they can, they can, it just may look different, right? My student can read. It just looks different. He doesn't read every single word, but he is reading. This child can communicate. He just needs to type it in. I mean, this is a child that formulated a sentence. I mean, I still am blown away by that experience. And of course, very honored to have been a part of that because it was a whole new can of, you know, a whole new um, world for him once I got him a device. And I was like, okay, we've got to get him an iPad. Like, let's get it in here ASAP. This child has something to say. So I will say my stance um, uh, on the superpower is it's not a negative, but make sure that we understand the context and that it has to do with strengths that need to be fostered. What are your last words, Torin? The last thing I want to give is an analogy. I don't like using term disabled either. I prefer something along the lines of differently, differently able, something like that. Maybe someone will come up with, with, with a phrase that's less of a mouthful. I don't like disabled. That that allude dis in the English language means can't or negative. It means unable to able, basically. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say someone's in a wheelchair and they live in the town of Stairsten, New York. And normally they can they, they can fully access all the stores and stuff because most of the stores are on the first floor or there's a ramp. But let's say something happens one day where Stairsten outlaws ramps and only has stairs now. Okay. That person is now disabled because of that law. That person was not disabled before the law. The law, in other words, the environment disabled that person. It's called the social model of disability. Yeah. When it comes to autism, most of what we call disability or most of the autistic symptoms, for lack of a better word, that we're calling disabilities are social disabilities, meaning they are being rendered disabled by the environment around them. It's too loud. It's too bright. Um, the adults around them yell at them too much. The teachers don't understand them. They're being dis they're being disabled. They are not disabled. They're being disabled. It is yeah. happening to them. Yeah. Don't disable your kid. Don't disable your student. Don't disable your patient. Make them able because they are not disabled. They are differently able. That's all I want people to keep in mind. That's it. We just have to support their needs. It's really that simple. And supporting your needs may be allowing them to read the way they want or providing a way for them to communicate in an alternative way that is not necessarily verbal. Um, and that's okay. That's really okay. All right. This is great, Torin. This is a really good topic. It's a topic I think that is not talked about openly. I think it's just sort of like scaved over. So, um, 
thanks for coming up with this as our topic for no problem. Yeah, this is great. I can't wait for next week. I know, I know. And 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 hopefully everyone listening is going to be excited about waiting for, for the next week and then the next week and then the next week. So thanks to everyone who um, joined us and um, we have more to say. That's the great thing about Torn and I. We both have lots to say. Yeah, and... we never run out of things to say. <laughs> and sometimes our words overlap, but Torn and I are used to that and we're good with it and it works for us. So we will um, join you in the next uh, podcast. All right.